Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Millennial in the Middle. I'm Connor DeLynn, and it is 1030 at night. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that so you can know that, you know, I have a full-time job, I've got a life, and I do this all on my own time. I do this on weekends, I do this at night, and I really love it. I really enjoy it. I mean, it's a little dorky, I gotta be honest, that it's 10.30 at night and I'm pumped up right now at the end of a long day to talk to you for a little while about the Electoral College. I admit, nerd alert, whatever you wanna call it, but here's why I enjoy this. The messages that you send to me, the comments that you make really mean so much. I know I say it over and over again, but I really mean it because that is my form of interaction with you. If I don't get those messages, if I don't see you following the accounts or whatever it might be, I'm just at 10.30 at night bored talking to my microphone, right? But when I get those responses to you, I know it's something bigger than that. So thank you so much for being involved. Thank you for reaching out with questions, with concerns, with thoughts for topics moving forward. And I'm excited because tonight's episode actually comes from a conversation that I had with a listener uh, and a question that she asked that basically led me to say, I think we need to do a whole episode on this because I know there are other people out there that might have a similar concern or a similar question. And so we're going to look at this today from that millennial in the middle mindset and we're we're going to look at some history. We're going to try to find some solutions. We're going to understand it is very complex, but hopefully this is something that, well, I know you're going to hear a lot about it over the next couple months, and I want you to be a little more informed when you hear people talk about it, and I know that'll be the case after tonight's episode. Uh, I guess you're maybe listening to it in the morning, but I'm doing it at 11 o'clock at night. So thanks for being here. Uh, thanks again to all of you who reach out. Follow our channels if you haven't. Uh, we're about to get really active on Instagram and on Facebook. So go follow. It's just millennial underscore in the underscore middle. Uh, that's our Instagram handle. And then the Facebook handle is just millennial in the middle of the page. Go like the page, follow that. We're going to keep you updated on episode releases, uh, more background on the actual episodes or the guests, whatever it might be. And we're going to start to have some open forums to be able to have some of those discussions as well. And I run those accounts. So you're talking to me when you reach out there. It's a direct line that I open up to my listeners. You give me the time of listening. So I will absolutely give you the time when you reach out with a question or whatever it might be. I absolutely love that, and I mean it. Uh, again, thanks to my team, Sarah Collins, uh, producing these episodes and the audio quality and all of those things with her expertise, um, and Kel Robbins for helping us with content creation and helping me out kind of run those social media channels as well. So we've got a great team. Thanks for being here. Let's dive into this. I want to start with a vocab word. I know that's like the lamest way to start any speech with Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines this, but I, it's important. I want to talk about the word paradox. I always have loved this word, but the word paradox means this, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. So let me break that down. A paradox is a statement that seems to contradict, that seems like both of those things can't be true at the same time, but then you look into it a little bit more 
and they are. So understanding that word, I'm about to give you a paradox. Are you ready? Donald Trump won the 2016 election in a landslide. And Hillary Clinton got millions of more votes than Donald Trump. Let me say that one more time. Donald Trump won the 2016 election in a landslide, and Hillary Clinton got millions more votes than Donald Trump. That is a paradox. We're going to look into it today and see how that, when explained or looked into, proves to be well-founded and or true. And the reason that it is true, the reason that it's well-founded is because of the Electoral College. Now, we hear about the Electoral College. I think most of us probably have some sort of idea what that is, but I want to dive into this in further detail today. We're going to talk history. We're going to show how it uh, came to be, then how we've kind of interacted with it over the last couple hundred years, and then look at some current problems uh, that we're facing right now and kind of give you my opinion on this. Um, I'm actually not going to stay neutral in this episode like I do on a lot. I'm going to tell you I'm for the Electoral College, and I'm going to explain why tonight. Um, Now, with that being said, I told you that this episode came from a question I got from a listener. Uh, Her name is Sunny. She reached out to me. uh, Shout out to Sunny, by the way. I hope you're listening. I, I know you're listening. You still are, right? And Sunny says to me, Connor, I live in Utah. I am probably going to vote for Donald Trump, but I know that he is probably going to win Utah. Let's be real. Utah goes Republican. So does my vote even matter? Now, that's a really good question. The first response I gave to her, which we're going to get into in later episodes, is honestly, she may be right. If Whether she shows up to vote for Donald Trump in Utah or not probably isn't going to determine if Donald Trump carries Utah. However, the other things down the ballot, uh, those local leaders, whether it be the mayor or whether it be uh, your representatives or senators, those are the people that often have a whole lot more uh, influence or power in your own day-to-day life than just the president themselves. And so, you know, that was my first response to her. We're going to talk about small government and do that later. But I want to discuss the Electoral College today because the second part of her question is, she said, I didn't really, I don't really understand the Electoral College. I kind of know the gist, but I'd like to know a little bit more about that. And I said, you know what? That is a great uh, question. I'm going to put something together and we're going to talk about that. So that's what we're going to discuss tonight. We're going to discuss the Electoral College and how that paradox that I just shared with you is true. So let's talk about the 2016 election. 2016 election, just to give you a little feel, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, meaning more people If you just tallied up the votes of people in America voted for Hillary Clinton, then they did Donald Trump. In fact, Clinton received about 2.9 million more votes nationwide, which was a margin of about 2.1% of the total votes cast throughout the U.S. However, Trump won a victory in the Electoral College in a landslide. He won 30 of the states with 
306 pledged electors out of the 538 possible. Um, and in that, he basically overturned. I mean, we know that if you look at the Electoral College map of 2016, it is extremely red. Uh, he overturned the swing states of Florida, Iowa, and Ohio, and also turned what has been called the blue wall of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin that has gone Democrat since the 1990s. Uh, and, you know, like we've talked about before on this podcast, all of this happening when Trump wasn't even projected to win at all and was down in all the uh, polls prior to the election. Now, this election we're going to talk about in a little bit more detail in a little bit, but let's first go back and look at some history. Now, we're going to go way back in history. I need you to think of a time before cell phones. Yeah, we're going to go back to 2000. I say that facetiously, right? But, you know, on a side note, isn't it crazy that we can talk about the year 2000 and that does kind of feel like history? For my like Gen Z listeners on the podcast, you may not even have been around or alive in 2000. Uh, We did the 9-11 podcast uh, tribute episode a couple episodes back and talking about how that was the 19th anniversary of 9-11. And to think there, there were a lot of people alive today that can vote that don't even remember 9-11. It's crazy to me. Uh, So, you know, 2000, uh, what are the hit songs in 2000? Number one hit songs, Christina Aguilera, What a Girl Wants. You remember that one? Destiny Child, say my name, say my name. In sync, it's gonna be May. That was 2000. And uh, the number one song during the election in November was With Arms Wide Open. All right, it's 1030 at night. Sorry, I had to do my Creed impression. Uh, I'm a little loopy right now. Stick with me. Number one show on TV in 2000 was Survivor. Why do I point that out? Because I have watched every season of Survivor since 2000. I love Survivor. I'm a diehard. If you're listening to this podcast and you're a Survivor fan, please send me a message to let me know that you're in the club, ready for season one. It's uh, season 41. It's coming soon. Anyway, 2000 election, Al Gore, who had been the vice president under Bill Clinton and George Bush, George W. Bush, uh, the son of George H.W. Bush, who was our 41st president. I feel like I can't say George Bush's name without doing it in the accent. It's, It's George W. Bush, right? And as we talk about the 2000 election, if you just listen to those debates, you'd probably think that we all lived in the South and we all talk like this, but that's what happens when you have someone from Texas and Tennessee running against each other in the election. Okay, if you haven't turned me off yet already, I'm sorry. Stick with me here. Here's what happened in the 2000 election. It, at about 8 p.m. Eastern time, most of the broadcasts uh, realized that this was an extremely close Uh, close election, that it was going to come right down to the end. And on election night, as we prepare for election night, as we're going to see it soon, a lot of the results that they show you on TV are from the exit polls. They're not actually ballots that are cast yet, but what they do is they have people from these news networks stand outside the bowling, the polling centers, or not the polling centers, the voting centers, excuse me, and poll people and ask them, who did you vote for? And from those exit polls, that's where they predict who wins. So they actually predicted from the exit polls that Al Gore was going to win Florida. 
if Al Gore wins Florida, they actually project Al Gore to win the election. He was going to be our 43rd president. As more of the actual results started to come in later and later in the night, they actually flipped it and they said, oh, no, wait, I think we got this call wrong. It looks like George W. Bush is actually going to win Florida, which would give him the election. And then as it got deeper and deeper into the night, they realized that it was so close of a call in Florida that they needed to have a recount. And a recount was going to decide ultimately who was going to win the election. Because at that point, those electoral college votes, uh, those electoral college uh, votes were going to determine who had the 270 necessary to win. Now, I don't fully remember the election of 2000. I was eight years old. Uh, so this is not this is history to me, right? I realize I have a lot of listeners that remember going through this. But there was a really messy recount that happened after that case uh, where basically, you know, if you've heard talk about the hanging Chad, right? They recounted in these different state, these different counties, these votes. There were all these votes that were literally the way they did it was like a hole puncher type thing. And the Chad, the little circular hole that the hole punch would create, stayed stuck on it. So it was punched in, but it was stuck there. It was hanging. And they actually came out and ruled, oh, if there's a hanging Chad, those votes don't count. Throw them in the trash. And so you can imagine it's this time of complete chaos because we don't know who won. We have two guys that both think they've got a really good claim to Florida and whoever wins that state is our next president. Ultimately, after recount after recount, uh, they ended up having this decision be made by the Supreme Court in Bush v. Gore. And basically, it was extremely controversial, but in a 5-4 vote, they basically ended the recount and said, we've proved enough times that George Bush has won, has gotten enough votes. Let's move on. George Bush is the president. Let's go. Uh, a lot of people claim that George Bush won the presidency in a 5-4 to four vote, uh, rather than taking into account everyone in the entire nation. Now, a couple things happened with this. Um, as he did that, and as George Bush won Florida, they ultimately found after the final recount that he won Florida by 537 votes, a margin of 0.009%. And ultimately, Bush won with 271 electoral votes, one more than the majority, despite Gore having 543,000 more votes, a margin of 0.5% of all votes cast. So... In 2000, this was the fourth of five times in our nation's history that the winner of the uh, the winner of the election didn't win the popular vote. Now, this was a big deal because it was the first time that this has happened since the since the 1800s. The last president to do that was Grover Cleveland. So it had seemed so far fetched for so long that someone that didn't win the popular vote would win the election, but all of a sudden it was brought right back up again in 2000. And then guess what? In 2016, Donald Trump, actually by a lot bigger margin, loses the popular vote. George Bush lost by 543,000. Trump lost by 2.9 million. And so think about it. In two of our last five elections, 40% of our last five elections, we have had 
the winner not have the most votes tallied up in the popular vote. Now, of course, the argument is you hear that logically, that just doesn't make sense. You're like, well, we're in a democracy. Why wouldn't the person with the most votes just win? That seems completely reasonable. That seems completely rational. Why do we even have this electoral college in the first place? Well, let's run the clock back a little bit further. Let's look at some legit history now, not 2000. Let's go all the way back to 1787 and see why the electoral college was put in place. And I want to explain some of the thought process of why this happened. We've talked about the Constitutional Convention several times in this podcast, and I'm sure we're going to do it again and again in further episodes. But the Electoral College basically came from what they call the Compromise of 1787. Now, let's go back in time. Let's set the, fra- let's set the framework for this in a little bit more detail. When you had the Constitutional Convention happen, People from different states, every state ended up sending some representatives to Philadelphia to form this stronger form of centralized government. I need you to realize this for just a few minutes. At that time in our nation's history, the states viewed themselves as independent of each other. They almost, it was easier to understand them as their own separate countries that formed this alliance per se. I mean, what did they call themselves? We're United States of America. And so while they all still wanted to have their own state governments, their own state leaders, the governor, they realized that if we're going to be able to fend off other attacks from other nations, or if we want to financially progress and all these grand ideals that we have for this nation, we need to have a stronger form of national government. So they got together and they decided, let's write this constitution thing. Now, by the way, these men, they had studied history. They studied Rome. They studied Greece. They said, you know, what were they doing in Athens? They looked at other European countries. What had worked? What didn't work? They tried to bring all this knowledge together and figure out a form of government that was going to work. Here's what's crazy. That document that they created During the summer of 1787 in a hot and sweaty room in Philadelphia, we still follow. We think about how different we are just from like 2020 to 2000, right? We joke about, you know, you didn't even know what a cell phone was in 2000. Think now 1787, but what those men created in that room, we still live by today. But what's interesting is there are things in the Constitution that were done out of necessity in that period of time that we still live by today. And frankly, we just don't ask questions often because it's just the way things are. It's the way things always have been. The electoral college is one of those ways, is one of those things. So in order to understand how the electoral college came about, it's important to understand the major differences that these founding fathers went into the constitutional convention with. We know there was definitely a big difference in rivalry between the North and the South. They had different ways of life. They viewed themselves as completely, you know, different people. And the biggest thing they disagreed on was slavery. But the other big disagreement was the difference between the big states and the small states. The small states were concerned, and rightfully so, that they weren't going to have equal representation in the government, that they were going to be walked all over by Virginia and New York. And Virginia and New York 
rightfully so, argued that, hey, we have a lot more say in this union. Why? Because we have more people. We have larger economies. We have a larger land mass. And so we should have more say. In the Constitutional Convention, there were two different plans that came forward as to how we were going to have our legislative branch. The Virginia plan, which said it should be strictly proportional to your your population. And the New Jersey plan, New Jersey being a small state, what do you think they wanted? They said it should be equal. Everyone should have the same number. And this, of course, is what led to the compromise that was made of in our legislative branch, we're going to have two houses of government. We'll have the Senate, which is the the New Jersey plan, and we will have the House of Representatives, which is the Virginia plan. Is everybody happy? Did we agree with this? Okay, let's move forward. And that's honestly what they did. Now, if you understand that, it suddenly becomes pretty easy to understand the Electoral College. Because here's what they said. Of all the different offices that we vote for when we go to the voting booth, there is only one office that we vote for that represents everyone that everyone in the entire country votes on. Because, hey, we all have our own state governments. You can vote for your governor, you vote for your senators, you vote for your congressmen or women. But the only thing we'll vote for that represents all of us is the president. And so immediately, what was the argument again? Well, wait, we don't want the president to just be picked by the big states. We don't want the president to just listen to the interest of those that live in big cities. And the fear was that if we just had a true democracy, everyone's votes count for the same, we tally them all up, and the person that has the most votes becomes president, what can potentially happen is the president can spend all their time in the big cities, they can win over the masses, and they don't need to worry about the concerns of those that live in more rural areas and live in areas that aren't as heavily populated. But we need to make sure those areas that aren't as heavily populated still feel represented by their president. So they'd already came up with the, they'd already come up with this great way to have proportion uh, to have kind of a compromise between the two. So if you're wondering the question of how do we decide how many electoral votes each state has, it's the number of representatives you have in Congress plus two plus your two senators. So what that ultimately does is it gives a little bit more power in those electoral votes to the individual votes that are happening of those in smaller states. So we're going to get to that in just a minute when I talk about some of what people claim to be the problems with the Electoral College of, yes, if you live in Wyoming, your vote is worth more than someone that lives in California. Now, I know I say that, and that just completely sounds like an injustice. Hold on just a second. We'll talk about that as we get to it in just a minute. Some of the other concerns in the Constitutional Convention, and this is where there's kind of not the greatest history to talk about because it's, it's kind of sad to think that we looked at it this way, but a lot of the Founding Fathers including Alexander Hamilton, the guy we all, you know, uh, love now, he honestly thought that we can't trust the people to pick a president. With, man, as hard as it is to communicate in 1787, they won't have the information they need. And frankly, they didn't trust the common man to make that vote. So they put in place a way where they said, hey, we don't even live in a democracy. 
Everyone that says, oh, we live in a democracy, we don't. We live in a democratic republic. We have representatives that we are going to send to make laws for us. The same concept applied to the Electoral College, that we will pick electors to decide who's the president. Think about it. The founding fathers put something in place to make sure that some orator that just knew how to win over the people but didn't have any sense of government made sure that that wouldn't happen and they wouldn't win. And that's why they put into place the Electoral College. That was one of their thinking. It's crazy to think how that has developed over the years. And as that went down, what we found is that a lot of the assumptions that the founding fathers made regarding the Constitutional Convention and the Electoral College and how it would pan out just proved to be untrue. One of the first things that they didn't expect was in 1787, there were no political parties. They honestly thought what was going to happen is in each presidential election, there would be a lot of candidates and that people would go to the polls, or excuse me, I keep saying that, they would go to the voting booth and they would vote for one of 10 candidates. But very early on in our government, this American experiment, we created this two-party political system that really became a strategy to win the White House, to make sure that you became the president. One of the other things that comes into play here is that they thought, because there were going to be so many people that would run, that ultimately it wouldn't even be the Electoral College that decided the, who won that it would be the House of Representatives. They wrote in place a check and balance that said, if one candidate does not get a majority of the electors, then what will happen is the House of Representatives, Congress, will choose who the president is. The founding fathers honestly thought that that would happen all the time. What's crazy is only two elections in the history of our country have gone down and not gotten a majority of the Electoral College, have had to be decided by the House, and the last time that happened was in 1824. So they had these ideas, but it just didn't fully pan out in the way they thought. Now, let's talk about some of the issues here in debate, and then we're going to wrap up. First off, I hope you know that question of now, how do we have as many votes as we do? It's because it's your representatives plus two senators. In Utah, we have five electoral college votes. For my listeners in here in Utah, we have three congressmen. We have two senators. There's your five. Uh, in California, you've got 55. Texas, 38. Florida, 29. New York, 29. Those are the highest. Um, and then you've got a lot of states that just have three. One representative plus their two senators, Wyoming, Montana, Alaska, North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, some of those that just have three. So here's the number one argument that's made against the Electoral College. Well, that's not true democracy. True democracy would just be adding everyone's votes up. The person with the most votes wins. And you're right. But like we just talked about a minute ago, the founders didn't plan on creating a democracy. They created a democratic republic. And as a part of that, they had to make sure that the individual interests of different geographical areas and smaller states were taken into account as well. So then here's where the injustice comes into play. So you mean to tell me that someone's vote in Wyoming counts more than someone's in California's? 
Yes, according to the Electoral College. In fact, mathematically, it's about five times the value of one California voter. Now, maybe that just seems unfair or crazy. But I think as we start to look at this, it's it's interesting to see what happens as we go through this. We don't have any problem when it comes to how we have our legislature in the House and the executive branch and in the Senate. But suddenly people start to have an issue when it comes to the president, right? Well, the other thing that comes into play here is the fear was that these candidates would always just spend their time in the big cities. Well, that's not what happens, right? We see candidates go all throughout the country, but in actuality, the problem, the real problem with the Electoral College is our two-party system. Why? Well, here's why I say that. We could go look at an a map of the election right now and probably have a pretty good feel for where about 35 to 40 of the 50 states will vote. Which way they'll go. We know which way they lean. We know historically kind of their makeup. And because of that, we'll make a vote. We'll make a guess on where they are. So what ends up happening is the candidates don't spend a lot of time in big cities. Where they spend their time is in the swing states. And so what the Electoral College has ultimately created is a world in which all that happens here is we have the candidates spending their time in a few different areas. And they know if they can pick up these different spots, then they're going to win the election. Now, you can't fault either party for doing that. It's straight strategy. It's out of necessity. It's people saying that I want to control the White House, so here's what I'm going to do. So unfortunately, to answer that question that Sonny gave at the start of the day, or that I shared that Sonny asked me at the start of the day, when it comes to does your vote matter in Utah, honestly, Utah's probably going to go red. There's a reason why Donald Trump or Joe Biden probably won't come campaign in Utah. Because in their minds, they already know where it's going to go. Presidential election is going to come down to a handful of states that are really close. And if they can get those states over the edge, then they can win. Now, here ultimately is where I feel is one of the problems with the Electoral College. We work under a winner-take-all system. So here's where the Electoral College can get a little bit hazy. Mathematically speaking... It is possible to win the presidency and win the Electoral College by just winning about 21% of the popular vote. Now, that is the absolute mathematical extreme. We've never had anything even close to that happen. But it's set up in a system where, now, how would you do that? If you won all of the states, starting with the smallest to the largest, if you won all of the states by a margin of just one vote, you would get all of those electors. And then if you looked at the largest states now, once you hit that 270 number, all those larger states on top of that, if you want 100% of those votes, you would have basically have a 21%, uh, 21% of the popular vote that the candidate that won those smaller states got but would somehow still win the Electoral College. Is that true? Yes. Does that mathematically not sit right when we want to believe that everyone's vote matters and everyone's voice is the same? Yeah, it's, it's tough to swallow. 
I get the arguments. If you want to have a little bit of fun before election day, I recommend you go to the website 270towin.com, 2702win.com. And what you can do is you can play with the Electoral College map and you can turn the different states, red or blue, and what you're looking for is 270 of those electors and finding a path to victory. And that's what these campaigns do. They know what's our path to that 270, what states can we get to turn, which states are we not even going to worry about because we know we're going to win or we know we're going to lose, and we're going to focus on those swing states. At the end of the day, to me, the problem is not in the Electoral College. Our House and Senate work just fine with proportionally how we've set it up. The issue is in extreme political parties. Now, what's the answer to that? Well, there's some different things that you can look up. Maybe go look up ranked choice voting. Um, I'm not going to jump into it in this episode, but it's basically the idea that rather than going and voting for one person, which will, uh, will, will often create this one of two choices, uh, that you go to the ballot and there are multiple choices to choose from and you rank from worst to best, or you pick like your top three, and that's who decides. Uh, and basically those votes are then tallied up. There's a whole system for ranked choice voting to decide who the winner is. Uh, Maine actually does this. Now, if you have a problem with the Electoral College, your state can change it. There are two states, uh, Maine being one of them, that actually uses a proportional voting process as opposed to this winner-takes-all system. And interestingly enough, in 2016, Hillary Clinton won a majority of the votes in Maine, but because of the rules they had in place of Maine's four electoral college votes, Donald Trump actually got one of those because of the percentage that he got in that certain county. So there are some ways to change this, but listen to this. Here's what I thought was interesting studying for this podcast. The electoral college people have made attempts to amend over 700 times in the history of our country. And it's never worked. It's never panned out. Now, in closing, here to me is what I feel is one of the strongest arguments for the Electoral College. I started this podcast by talking about the election of 2000 and that it was madness. And then we went for months wondering who was going to win Florida and recount after recount and contesting the results and going back and then it ultimately having to go to the Supreme Court and them saying, the recounts have been enough, George Bush, you're the winner. If we just had a true democracy and added up all the votes at the end of the day to see who would win, the margin of error that would then justify a recount could be in the millions of votes. And so every single election that stays close, if you go back and look at a lot of them recently, would go to a recount. And then guess what? You have to recount every single ballot. How it works currently, we basically have 50 different individual races. They add up those states, they pick a winner there, and then that state is then awarded a certain amount of like points, right, is the way I like to think of it, that then get awarded to the one candidate or the other. Is it a perfect system? No. Is it designed to try and help the smaller states have just a little bit more power? 
to just have a little bit more say so they're not walked over by the Californias and the Floridas and the New Yorks of the world? Yeah, it is. Does that mean that someone's in Wyoming's vote means a little bit more than someone in California? Yes. But I don't think that's at the end of the world. That's the end of the world when we really look at all of this uh, and kind of dial this down. I think our problem, like we talk about a lot on this podcast, is in political parties themselves. But the way we've set up, there's a reason why this hasn't changed in over 200 years. There's a reason why this has tried to be amended 700 times and it's failed. Because we have a place right now, or we have a system in place right now that leads to a pretty clear-cut winner most of the time. The rules are set. Here's how you win. You need 270 electoral college votes to get the job done. So go make it happen. Go win. Go see if you can pull it off. And at the end of the day, say a state or two is close enough that they need a recount. Most of the time, you've already figured out who that winner is going to be. So we have a feeling of who the president's going to be pretty soon after the election, as opposed to months and months of chaos, of arguing, of who knows what can go on as we try to mess with the ballots and recount over and over. We don't want the election of 2000 to happen year after year, and the Electoral College sets up a pretty clean and easy way to win. So, that's a lot. There's a lot of history there. That is a pretty complex topic. It is now 11 o'clock at night, and I am tired just talking through all this. You're probably tired listening to it. Thanks for going through it with me. I hope now as you watch the election, as you watch the debates, as you start to take this in, you've got a little bit better understanding of the Electoral College and why it's in place. And now when someone says to you, why don't we just count up everyone's votes? Like, why do we even have this in the first place? I hope that you can look at them and say, well, since the Compromise of 1787, sound real smart, talk about the Constitutional Convention and why we have this in place, and you'll be a little bit more informed as you have these conversations as we approach uh, election season. So, thanks for listening. Until next time, clowns to the left me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. See you next time. Clowns to the left me.